spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Get ready to kickstart your Halloween weekend. It's episode 340 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Hopefully you're going to have a very happy and safe Halloween. And I thought I'd bring a guy back on the show to talk about his latest horror kickstarter that he's got going on for a horror comic. Adam Lawson going to join me again to talk about the Kill Journal and some other really cool stuff that he's got in the pipeline. Can't wait to talk to Adam about that again. Speaking of Halloween, don't forget you could still get our deal from Shudder, Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. They were sponsor a couple weeks ago. You enter promo code D-N-P-O-D and you get 30 days for free of Shudder. So that'd be perfect for your Halloween weekend should you want something a little bit more scary this weekend. But the, as far as this week goes, got a couple of great comics to talk about, including The Last Ronin. Going to talk about the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book that everybody's been talking about. Some first looks to talk about nerd news. But up next, how about a spoiler-free review of Blood of Zeus, the new anime from Netflix. We'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. With so much stuff that's streaming nowadays, I want to talk about something that might have gotten lost in the shuffle for you on Netflix. It's the new anime series Blood of Zeus that is from the same studio that gave us Castlevania and Seismanos. It's from Powerhouse Animation Studios on Netflix. And basically the gist of this thing, I love at the very beginning of the first episode, by the way, this is going to be spoiler free. So I'm not going to spoil anything because, again, this is something you might have missed, might not have seen. So I don't want to spoil anything just in case you're just now realizing that this exists and you want to go ahead and go see it. But the very first episode basically says there's been a lot of tales of of the gods over time. And this is one of those tales that has been lost over time. So I love that they're taking that angle of a, yes, this is a story of of gods like Zeus and, and Hera and 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 Aries and things like that, but here's a story that you might not know that hasn't been told yet. So I think that that's really cool, and it's basically a story about a commoner named Heron who lives in a small village, and and there's a reason for that, and they get into that in the series. But this is the only spoiler I'm going to give you, but it's completely 100% obvious from the very beginning. So it's really not that much of a spoiler, and it's in the trailer too, by the way. Heron Heron finds out that he is the son of Zeus and that he basically has to save the world from a demonic army. And I will say this, there's more to it than that. And that is the biggest spoiler I don't want to give you is that there's more to this demon army than it's simply just being a random demon army. There is a whole story behind This demon army, how they came to be, what the circumstances were, who was responsible or not responsible for that. And that's something that can be open-ended to interpretation for you while you're watching it. As to, you know, who was actually responsible for this demon army existing in the first place. But it gives you a whole story as to how they came to be. And I think that that is super super cool the the way that they, because they make you it, you feel like at first that it's just a you know, it's just demons right which wouldn't that wouldn't be a bad thing either by the way there there are you know certainly less interesting things than just a random demon army but it's not random and that's one of the things that I think was really smart about that how this series was written and it's also really smart how they go about Heron's story and there's a couple of shocking things that happen in the first few episodes of this season that really set things up for Heron and his journey forward, and which I think is is really really interesting and and I mean you know gut wrenching at certain points as well. But I will say this: these demons are no freaking joke. They are ruthless. They are brutal. They are take no prisoners. It's scary, man. Like, it's really bad what these demons can do. But it also shows you the strength 
of those who are fighting the demons. Like there's there's an Amazon in this series called Alexia. She's almost like a gladiator in a way. And she's part of a guard that's hunting down these demons, played by Jessica Henwick, by the way, who does a fantastic job with this character. And Alexia is just one of those one of those characters that you just go, like, she is awesome. Like when she's on the screen, she is fierce. She can battle with the best of them. She doesn't back down from anything or anyone. She owns the space that she's in. It's amazing to watch her fight, to watch her lead her army. It is absolutely incredible. I love the dynamic between her and Heron, Heron together as well. And Derek Phillips, again, as the voice of Heron, does, does an incredible job. Tip of the cap, though, to Jason O'Mara who does the voice of Zeus here. And you don't really necessarily can, you can't necessarily tell it's Jason O'Mara. When you hear that voice, there are certain times when you're listening and you go, yeah, that's Jason O'Mara. But for the most part, you you don't really know, which is pretty incredible. The way that he goes about this character. And this is a different Zeus, by the way, this is this. And you'll understand why I say that. When you watch the series, okay, you'll, you'll you'll get that when you watch it. But I think probably my favorite performance, as far as the voice cast is concerned, from this series, is from Claudia Christian, who plays Hera. I mean, just unbelievable. And what Hera goes, I say goes through. Okay, again, this is open to interpretation. What happens to Hera early on in this season, or what she discovers, I should say, and and again, sets things up for what's going to be happening later on in, in the season. It just, the way it turns her perspective, for lack of a better way of putting it, and of course, since I can't spoil anything, the way that you see her, this character shift mentally and, and how her mindset shifts and how Claudia Christian just completely 100% gives a top-notch performance and just dives right into this thing. I just enjoyed it to an immense degree. I thought that she was fantastic as this character. I mean, all of your lead characters are very, very good, but 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 Hera just stood out to me as the one that was incredible. And I mean, shout-out to Mamie Gummer, too, by the way, who plays... Electra and Electra's story, not Taryn's mother, by the way. Electra's story is a very again, it's it's a story that that we are given. We get some really good backstories to some really important characters in the series, and it allows them to give us a depth for these characters. And again, I, I talk all the time about you know, make me care about the characters that I'm watching. Make me care about and be invested in those that I am watching, and they absolutely do that in this series. And and again, her story, Electra's story, is a really, really interesting one. And yeah, you're going to get that story early on. You might be surprised by how that goes, by the way. The, 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 the action is top-notch. The animation is just incredible. I think I've talked about this when I've talked about the trailer before. But basically, if, if Powerhouse Animation Studios is doing anything then I, I'm on board at this point. I mean, obviously with Castle, Castlevania was a beautiful show, and, and you think, okay, well, how do you follow that up? Well, they followed that up with a little something called Seis Manos, which was also an incredible and just eye-popping show. And now you give me this, you give me Blood of Zeus, which is another eye-popping show with some incredible action, You've got me, okay? Powerhouse Animation Studios, you you have me now, and I will be involved in basically everything that you do at this point, and I'll be looking forward to it immensely because they they just know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They they know how to get people involved. They can make these series successful, and they know how to make them beautiful. And I know that that, that a big part of that is Netflix, as well, being involved too. I, I understand that, but it's a partnership that works, does it not? But then you get somebody like Charlie Parla Penedis and, and Vlas Parta, 
Parlopanidis, excuse me, I butchered those names completely, by the way, and I apologize for that, gentlemen. But you get these two involved in this series and that write, that have written it so incredibly well, who also did Immortals, by the way, and then you grab an executive producer like Brad Graber that's involved in this as well, and everybody, just from top to bottom, has put together a top-notch, must-see show that, that ends up, by the way, it, it's it's a hit. I mean, if you look on social media, it's one of those things you're like, what is this? It's trending. It's Blood of Zeus because it's amazing and you should be watching it on Netflix, all episodes streaming right now. So, yeah, take part of your weekend this weekend. Watch Blood of Zeus. You will not be sorry that you did. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Blood of Zeus from Netflix. Up next, going to talk about yet another amazing Kickstarter from writer Adam Loss, and we'll talk to him about the Kill Journal and some other stuff he's got in the works as well. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aubrey Sitterson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is a name you might recognize from a little campaign called The Eighth that actually did pretty darn well on Indiegogo. And guess what? He is back for another one called The Kill Journal. He's got so much more stuff going on. I had to bring him back. Perfect for Halloween, too, by the way. So let's say a happy Halloween to writer Adam Lawson. What's up, man? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me back. I mean, it just seems like it's it's perfect, man. But it really actually wasn't too long ago that we were talking to you about your last project, The Eighth. Now you are back with the Kill Journal. You're kind of leaning more into the horror for this one, which I kind of dig. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did that story come together? Yeah, so I think at the core of it, the, the Kill Journal has been something I've been noodling with from a story standpoint for a few years. And it started with this idea of, you know, what happens after the horror movie ends, right? After the, the few survivors are left over and they're covered in mud and blood and they're looking around at their houses that have been burned down and the, the cop sirens are blaring and then credits roll, right? And so I wanted to tell the story that happens after those credits, right? How do these people who have been experienced this ungodly amount of horror and trauma, how do they cope? And in the Kill Journal, they find themselves at St. George's Church because he offers support groups for people who survived revenant attacks. Uh, but really what he's doing, he's trying to recruit people in his crazy mm -hmm. supposed holy war to hunt down these revenants. So he sells them on the idea that revenge, becoming something violent and holy, will be the way they can cope. So he pulls them into this, supposedly he claims it as this divine war, because a revenant butchered his congregation and his son and his wife has vanished, and he's now hunting hunting revenants. And so revenants in our tale are vengeful spirits that are back from the dead, or that's the classic definition of the word revenant. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so, and so some things that could be defined fall under that, though it's broader than that as like a slasher, like a Jason Voorhees could fall under that, but also like a, a Chinese Jiangshu could fall in under that as well. So it's a little, it's a little broader, uh, but it has lots of tropes, or lots of, I shouldn't say tropes, but elements that you might have seen with somebody like a Freddy Krueger, where they're somebody who's back from the dead and they have some sort of supernatural power. But these revenants are tricky because they're a spiritual problem at the core, right? Manifest in a physical form. So just shooting them or running them over with a truck doesn't do it, right? You have to solve this spiritual problem where they keep coming back. And so what I loved about that was that you have these survivors who are going to go hunt these revenants, except that the revenants are a lot stronger than them. And they're never actually going to become strong enough to take a revenant toe-to-toe, -to -toe, right? They're always going to be more powerful. It's like me getting in a wrestling match with an alien, you know, from mm -hmm. the Scots world. Like, I'll never get good enough at wrestling to take one out. I may last a little longer than I could before. Sure, of course. But I have to be smarter. But I, but I have to be smarter, right? And with these revenants, you've got to learn what created them. And I think that's the other fun part about these revenants is they have their own myth right each one has their own separate origin of how they came to be uh and lots of times they may have been a victim of terrible abuse or circumstances and that's how they were made and some are just a bad seed and so it's figuring out what these histories are behind these revenants and then building a custom booby trap if you will or a custom trap to kill them in the you know, slasher example with Jason Voorhees, you've got to take him back to Camp Crystal Lake, right? You've got to mm -hmm. drown him like he was as a kid. And so that's part of their effort. So they're, they're like, there's some gumshoe work and 
figuring out what's happened, all while trying to not get butchered by this revenant who knows they're onto them. And so that's that's the kill journal. That's kind of where where it came from. And I think I I've always loved horror movies and horror stories because they're essentially a fantasy story at their core, right? Set sure, in yeah. usually a suburban world. And because it's fantasy and it has fantasy-like elements, you can kind of abandon thinking about like the the detailed machinations of real life with elections and all that craziness, and you can focus more on the themes of your characters and their struggles. And I, I, I like that very much. Layers, man. Layers. I love it. It's good stuff. Now, one th- let's add another layer to that because one thing that really stood out to me when I was looking at these pages, man, the character designs are just killer they are so good and i think the saint george might be my favorite but i mean it's 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 close race i'm just gonna put it out there very close race now but what was that creative process like in collaborating with the art team because this is just next level this might be and this is saying something for anybody that knows about the eighth this might be better than the eighth character design was and that's saying a lot this is good stuff well you are too awesome yeah so the way it started out worked out early on i was working with an artist his name is tauntaun revolver and it started out, you know, years ago when I was trying to beat out, you know, who these who these survivors were, who they became. These are kind of images of who they become. Like Sydney, for example, she's not that aggressive day one, right? She becomes that, you know, about halfway through the tale. Yeah. So as far as that, and I and so we pulled a lot of of references from sort of every aggressive either woman or man that we knew in comics and in cinema. And I think I also wanted this idea of this revenant, right, that was uh, – sorry, this uh, reverend or this priest that was badass, right, as you mentioned, St. George. Because there's something cool about sort of like a holy man with a shotgun, right? It's the 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 odd contradiction of that. Oh, no doubt, yeah. That, right, it's exciting to see. So I I wanted to build these uh, characters with sort of two sides to them. You know, a Brecken, if you see how he's a Creole uh, swamp rat, if you will, and – you know, who has these voodoo ties, you can, you can see the voodoo tattoos on him, right, that made him uh, a layered character, once again, as you say. And so that's really where it came out, and I think that I wanted to incorporate each of their names are tied into horror directors. Um, so, for, for example, Marty's character's name is Marty Tanaka, right? She's half Japanese, which is the last name of the director of Ringu. And the church is on Carpenter Lane. Yep. And so I tried to incorporate these fun little bits of the of the horror world into the characters as well. So anyone that heard my last interview with you knows that you're a sucker for the hardcover editions. Man, you love those hardbound graphic novels. So how cool was it to yes. add a leather-bound graphic novel as one of your perks? And I'm going to need you to tease a little bit about that eye symbol on the back too, though. Yes, yes. So I, I love that you say that because I feel like that too as we talked last time. It's like I, I want it to be a collectible item, right? Especially if you're going to go all the way through of backing it on an Indiegogo or Kickstarter or wherever you're at. And and you're going to have to wait. You can't just walk home with it, right? It better be something that's worth putting on your shelf. Mm-hmm. And so this one, I, um, in the story, um, St. George, he keeps a record of all the revenants that they're hunting and the mechanics around them. And he keeps them in a book he calls The Kill Journal. And this leather-bound edition is designed exactly to the one that's in the book. So in a way, you're reading the story, and the guy who's in the story is writing the story you're reading. And so if you can see, there's the eye on the back. But if you look closer, there's all these kind of old Catholic symbols in there because I felt like it should be based on a Catholic Bible just from the priest standpoint. And there's three major hidden symbols in on the front and back cover that tie into the story and you'll see them echoed in uh, different plot lines and characters inside of the story. And so it's a fun discovery, like that the book itself has some secrets tucked into uh, that faux leather design. Makes you want to read it twice. That's always a good thing. Never a bad thing to have that happen. Speaking of reading it though, I mean, one of your stretch goals actually, as I was looking is to add pages and possibly expand past that 88 pages that the graphic novel is going to be. Talk about how that's going to work. Yeah, so what's happened is is the 88 pages is the full, uh, I would consider, central storyline. But what's not in that central storyline is a detailed tale of each of the survivors' origin, if you will, the night they were attacked. It gets mentioned, and there's a panel or two, because I just didn't, I didn't want our main story to be tied up in origin story, origin story, origin story. Where, But, the, but these four or six-page tales at the back of the book 
are St. George's dossiers. They are his write-ups on each of the survivors and the night they were attacked. So if you can imagine, each of those six-page stories, one is about Marty or Sydney or Finch or Brecken, is the night they were attacked by a revenant. And it gives some new insight into the characters and fully paints the event. And I think that's fun to see after you've read the story. Um, Headlopper, which is one of my favorite comics, did this really cool thing where in the last trade, like they had these little stories at the end that were done by different writers and artists. <clears throat> and it was so fun after you've already loved this character for a while to then go backwards and feel a little more of a connection to them. So it's almost like giving everybody their own one shot, essentially, but at the end. That's right. Awesome. Right. I love that. I love that. Talking to Adam Lawson, of course, the writer and creator of The Kill Journal, which you can back all the way up until November the 6th. Make sure you're getting on Indiegogo to do that. Adam, let's talk about the 8th for a minute, though. I know fans and backers really love to get an update on what's going on or what might be next. So I know that the stretch goal for Atticus's story wasn't quite reached, but what do you think the future looks like for the 8th? Yeah, so here's the thing. So yes, we didn't get Atticus's story, but we got Yam's story. We got a 12-page um, story added on to the 8th. Um, in fact, the artist is working on that right now. It's a different artist. goes by Magnaz. It's his screen name. It's uh, It ties in. So if you, in the 8th, the last couple of books of issues, it really expands the world and it gets huge in scope. And these new 12 pages takes us back in time to the flood of Noah which was sort of the ending of the last eight, the last person to wear the armor. And it's like this science fiction version of that. It is the setting behind it and one of the key characters. If anybody's been keeping up on the digital issues, you'll have met Yam. And it's his original story because Yam is actually the name of one of Noah's son who didn't go on the ark, who you know is both in um, Arabic and Judeo-Christian myth. Uh, and our tale is kind of set a little bit in more more of the Arabic side. So that's super exciting. But what is great um, is so the eighth, we're done with, se- we have seven issues done. The eighth issue is is in line work now. And probably in the next couple of weeks, the line work will be done and moved on to colors. And we're, we're four issues in that have been coming out digitally every month to backers. Issue, issue five will have probably will just be about to land. And so that's really exciting. So and I think that there's been such a great positive reaction from the fans people who've been following it and enjoying the story. And there's even some cool reviewers who have, who've gotten in on it and do a monthly review of every issue, which has been fun to see. I'm still holding out hope for that tabletop game, Adam, you know, I'm not going to let that go. Right? No, it, it's already in the works. Ah, there it it's is. Already see, in the works. That's why we do a- this. You just, you were just <laughs> waiting to drop that on me. Weren't you? Okay. Thank you. There yes. it is. All right. It is. Oh, well, there it is. Oh, so I, I, you know, I've, you know, I've loved tabletop games, and I have a new one launching November seventeenth called The Sunder. It's, uh, you know, because I, I did a board game for Escape Tonight for my TV show, and then now I have this new one called The Sunder that drops then, and probably the eighth game will be sometime early to mid next year. So we're really bump, pumped about it. Yeah, right. You, you need the board game too. Man, I'm, I love that. That that makes my night right there. Now, now I can be happy. Here we go. All right. So, <laughs> you, you know, I people, anybody that knows you and, of course, follows you on social media at Failed Superhero knows that you actually, you also back a lot of projects as well. So, I mean, what is it, what is something, you know, just give, give people a clue out there. What's something that makes you want to back another project? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you're totally right. I try to back um, a lot of creators and I'm probably like a hundred deep at this point and uh, which I have to slow down just a touch, but, yeah, well, um, you know, we'll have our vices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is mine. That is mine. Um, be living in the shack and still backing things. There you go. There um, you go. I think I think there's there's sort of three components that really um, lure me in. The the first one is is this story somehow fresh in a new way, mm-hmm. which usually leads me to non superhero tales because it's pretty hard to make a superhero tale in a traditional sense a spandex story fresh, though not impossible. There's like this interesting tale. One I backed recently called War Party, and it's about you know this colonial wars like eighteen seventeen time frame, and like the characters are all lycanthropes of various types. So some is like a were tiger and were shark and were bear. Oh, I love that. And they're like caught up in this like colonial war, and it's like I can't get that anywhere else. That is right? wild, man. Yeah. And wow. So, uh, 
And so, and the creator's a nice guy. And so like, I saw that and I'm like, man, what a fresh thing. It's a six issue tale. And I'm like that. And it's about just, so that's, that's the first thing. Is it this story? And then two, is the art meaningful? Or I should say, is it engaging enough for me to want to, to read it? Which is true always for mainstream comics as well. Because sometimes there would be a DC book, even though it's the big uh, budgets, where the art just didn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. I, and so I don't go with it. So that's a, a second thing. And then the third thing is when you're looking through it, like I want to see some pages completed mm-hmm. and sort of check the paneling out so that it, I realize that I feel like this is a going to be a, 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 a worthy read, right? Like, it, like it, it's the professional quality. They've made several pages so that you know this team can do it. So those are kind of the three things that I'm always looking for. And I would say maybe, I guess maybe, and I am tickled if it's a hardcover. Of course you are. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah, we definitely, definitely already knew that one. That that one was a given. I, I put that one on the pile already for you. Yeah, that was it for sure. And there's this book, The Wailing Blade, another amazing indie book. I caught it on Comixology, and then now they released a hardcover of it. And I was like, I'm a day one backer. Yep. Like, oh, the there it is. <laughs> there it is. Well. Adam, before I let you go, man, uh, you gave me a little tease about something off the air that that I'm that I'm kind of excited about as well. I know you got something else in the works that you might be able to tease for us. Well, how much can you, can you tell us about Kids and Monsters? Ooh, yes. So, Kids and Monsters is will be our next graphic novel, and it's about two young teenagers whose parents are getting a divorce, and right at the time of this divorce, the young son starts to see these cracks in the world. And they find these backpacks, and inside these backpacks are these huge monsters that live inside them. And they get caught up in this supernatural war, and when they're in a pinch, they pull these monsters out of these backpacks. But this supernatural war is mirroring the war going on at their home with their parents. And so the solve for the, the battle, the war, is also the solve for them coping with their parents' divorce. And so – it's you know a suburban setting with fantasy elements rooted in the struggles of being a teenager trying to survive your parents' divorce. That is insane, man! I can't I can't wait to to see more about that. This is why you got to back this guy's projects because you can go right now to Indiegogo search search for the Kill Journal. It's also filled superhero. You search Adam Lawson, you can find it anyway. You need to back this thing all the way up until November the 6th. You heard me talking about the 8th. He's actually, he's, this is how cool he is. You can get the 8th as an add-on if you back the Kill Journal, too. It's, it's, it's like, it's like on, the, it's on, the, on the extra value menu. You're like, you, just, you want some of this, too? Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and do this as well. So just go find out everything that this guy's going on. Also, follow him on social media. I am getting that right. Aren't I, Adam, at Failed Superhero? At Failed Superhero gets me on Twitter. At Failed Superheroes Club gets me on IG. There you go. So um, you, you can see Instagram, all that stuff. And, and he's got pages galore yep. up there too, by the way. Yes. So that you can you can believe. You can believe. Oh, you will believe. That's that's for darn sure. It's Adam Lawson. Thank you so much for joining me this week, man. Hey, appreciate it, James. Appreciate it, man. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether they're in long boxes or file folders. Hey, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And the first book I'm going to talk about is one that's been talked about a lot since it's been out. It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, number one from IDW. Got Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, and Tom Waltz putting the writing and the story together here. Isayu and Isaac Escarosa on the art. Also Ben Bishop helping with page 39 there. Luis Antonio Delgado and Samuel Plata also doing the colors there, Plata doing the assist, and Sean Lee on the letters. Now, definitely going to have a, a couple of spoilers in this one since it's been out for a few days, so there's a little bit of a warning for you there. Now, basically what we've got going on here is Emperor Oroku Hiroto is now ruling the land, and th- the city looks terrible. Let's just put it out there right now, and there's one turtle left, to try and make it all right. Now, based on who that turtle is, you might or might not be able to guess his approach. That's one thing I don't want to spoil for you. I know that's been spoiled on, on social media a little bit, but I don't want to spoil who it is for you if you haven't read the book yet. So I de- I said there's going to be spoilers 
I'm not going to spoil who it is. I, I got to tell you, I was surprised about who it was. It seems like it's obvious. It's not as obvious as you think it is. That much I can't tell you. Now, in his darkest hour, though, someone appears to him that could very well change his motivation and his outlook on life in general. That much I can tell you. I will say this, though. There's no doubt the most adult Turtles book in a while. This book is definitely hardcore. I know some serious stuff has happened in Turtles books recently, especially, you know, around issue 100 and such. This one takes the Turtles back to their roots, and I mean way back to their roots before some fans even know the Turtles existed, like the early comics. This kind of takes them back to those kind of days. Now, this book also keeps you a bit off-balance story-wise, making it not totally clear what's canon and what's not canon, which is a very good thing, I think. Good news is, if you dig it, you've got about 70-plus variants to choose from for this thing. So if you're looking for a variant cover or looking to stock up, this is your chance to do that. There are a ton of them, and some of them are really, really amazing. I mean, they're all good, but some of them are just knock your socks off good. The character designs here in this book for the story are just haunting and so appropriate for the setting. I love the color work, too, by Delgado and Plata. I think that that really, really hammers home what kind of a place we're dealing with, what the city is really all about right now. It's it's incredible. And, and you can only have a story like this with the team of Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, and Tom Waltz that have just been working with these characters for so long and, and created them, in, in Eastman and Laird's case, just just to bring this to the table and, and give us something fresh and different and new and, you know, sort of just like I said, back to the roots of the Turtles. This one did not disappoint one bit. If you're a Turtles fan, go get the first issue of The Last Ronin. You will not be sorry that you did. Here's something I'm not going to be able to spoil at all because it doesn't come out until November 11th. That is Resident Alien, your rides here, number one from Dark Horse Comics. Getting an early start on this one. Peter Hogan, of course, writing this one. And Steve Parkhouse doing the art and colors and just the heavy lifting as far as the drawing is concerned. Now, if you're a Resident Alien fan, you know the principal players at play here, so I don't have to remind you of that. If you're not, though, I will warn you one thing. This is not really a jumping on point for new readers because it picks up off of basically what's been going on with Harry in the first place back from his trip to New York. Certainly learned a lot of things. Doesn't necessarily mean though that he's ready to just kind of settle back in where he's at. I mean, he goes back, but he doesn't, there's something different this time. I guess the best way I could possibly put it without spoiling anything, which I'm not going to do. He's actually come to some realizations. He's not just going to sit on them either. It looks like, this is going to be one of those things where you 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 realize some certain things about your life and yourself, and you, you you got to do something about it at some point. Now, what that's going to be exactly remains to be seen. Now, meanwhile, the questions with Asta, I mean, kind of continue, and there's some interesting developments with her in this issue, and something that that happens to her that's happened before. If you're again, if you're a fan, you'll know what's going on here, and and the results of that, very, very interesting. And I know I'm being cagey here, but I really, I can't, there's a lot I could spoil, and I'm just not going to do it. There's a couple of other things that in this issue that seem kind of random, but could prove to be more important as things to continue, continue to progress, especially the way this book ends on kind of a weird note, but like, um, like a weird note on purpose, not like it doesn't make sense, like, okay, this is where the next step in this particular story is going to go, and I can't help but think that the beginning part of this story is going to tie into that thing that happens at the end. Now, if you're a resident, if you're a resident alien fan already, anyway, this issue fits right in for you. This is just, this is going to be a nice continuation of the story that you love, anyway. It's still a very charming read. The art is charming to match it, just as it always has been. And I mean, this is really good. A, a good way to kind of reintroduce yourself to the world of Resident Alien. It's timed out very well with these the, the live-action series coming to sci-fi here pretty soon, too. So, I mean, as a fan of Resident Alien myself, I was I was definitely looking forward to jumping back in and re-familiarizing myself with the characters and things like that. Just really interested to see where this is going to go, though, because I think this is a pivotal time for a lot of the characters in this book and could change beyond the horizon. We'll have to wait and see. 
That's going to do for what we're reading up next. How about a couple of big first looks released by DC and Warner Brothers this week? We'll talk about those and a lot more nerd news next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. How appropriate that on the week of Halloween, we get a look at a couple of really neat costumes. It's time for nerd news. And I want to start with Batwoman and the first full look at Javicia Leslie's suit. It's going to be coming up in season two of Batwoman on the CW. Now, if you want to see it, Go to downandnerdypodcast.com, all the credits up there, you know, for who designed the suit and things like that. But I will say that when I first saw it, the first thing I noticed was the red gauntlets. That was the first thing I noticed, and I thought that those looked really, really neat. They really stand out on the suit, and the suit just in general just looks like a suit that's more fitting of... The Bat Family. And and by that, I mean, it looks more polished. I mean, it's it's definitely leather-based. You know, it just looks like more of an upgraded suit. Now, that, of course, we know that, you know, Javisi is going to be wearing the, the old suit that Kate Kane had in the first few episodes, at least. I mean, right in the beginning, she's not going to get a brand new suit right in the beginning. We know that already. So this is a suit that's going to be coming a little bit Later on, I love what they did with the cape as well. The utility belt looks like an, a little bit of an upgrade on the suit too, and and the hair the hair is totally different, which is fine by the way. I actually think what this message sends with this suit is saying that they are ready for a fresh start, and this is a show that just you know it's at that point they they're really kind of forced into it, but they are taking a fresh start approach, and what is wrong? With that, absolutely nothing. I mean, you got Ryan Wilder is going to be the new Batwoman. There's there's no Kate Kane, but they are going to deal with the mystery of, of, of where she is and what's going on with that. So that will be a part of season two, as I've discussed on another show. But this just, you see this Batsuit, and it's a, it's, it was very well designed, I think. And it also just tells you that this is going to be a fresh start for the show, for the character and it's it's a breath of fresh air and you know there was there were a lot of fans that didn't like the first season of Batwoman anyway. I'm on record as saying that I that I really enjoyed it. Okay? So I'm not going to sit here and act like I didn't because I did. But at the same time if you didn't like the first season, this season feels really fresh. So I I, mean, I can't imagine you wouldn't jump in to see if you like it this time around. I mean, I know the same writers are there, same showrunners, stuff like that. And that's why I'm, I I feel pretty confident that they're going to be able to pull this off and have a good second season and have a nice future with this cast and with Javicia Leslie as well. But again, that's an only time will tell type of situation. How could it not be? But just seeing this first look at this suit, and I know it's just a look at a suit. We don't really have much beyond that, but it, it just, it gives me confidence. It gives me hope that they realize what they have to do and that change is necessary, and that has is, is definitely been shown in this suit. Batwoman Season 2 still scheduled to come out in January of 2021 at some point. The other first look that we got was from HBO Max and company about the Red Hood. Now, Kern Walter is going to be playing Jason Todd once again in Season 3 of Titans, which will be on HBO Max now, by the way, in case you didn't know that. And we get a first look at the costume for Red Hood. Again, down in nerdypodcast.com if you want to find out who designed it and all that good stuff. I will say this. I love the helmet right off the bat. Love it. And, you know, I, there is a little bit of a Red Hoodie on there. I understand that. But everything, every little detail, the heavy armor artillery that they have on the costume that you can see through the through the jackets. You know, you, you got the pistols on the hips there. And... Just everything about this to me says it's just so comics accurate. And it just jumps right out at you. I love absolutely everything about this costume design. And this is exactly, you know, very rarely in these instances. And and this and I say this as somebody who thinks that they've done a pretty good job across the board with the suits on shows that were either on the Arrowverse or on DC Universe, HBO Max, whatever you want to say. I think that they've done a pretty good job with the suits and the costumes so far. This one might be one of the best first looks 
that they've given in a while. This one is really, really polished, really good. It's 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 menacing. It's got that seriousness to it. I love it. And how they're going to introduce... Now, here's the other thing, too. You can introduce this character for this upcoming season of Titans a couple of different ways, and they both work. You either introduce him as somebody who's with the Titans and wants to prove his worth and show that he's, you know, he's got a new agenda now, he's different, or you put him as something, someone who's against the Titans because they didn't treat him very well in the past, they left on bad terms, so he's going to really shake things up a little bit. But either way, you know Red Hood's going to do his own thing. We know Jason Todd, regardless of the situation, is going to do his own thing Anyways, I could not be looking forward to this more. They're filming season three of Titans right now. I'm glad they gave this first look so we don't have those little blurry set images that come out. They just decided to come right out with and say, hey, here it is. You don't have to worry about trying to sneak a peek at it. It's right here. Here you go. Enjoy. So I'm glad that they went ahead and did that. And it looks great, too, by the way. Something else. It's, it's a nice week. Of stuff to look forward to, quite frankly, because Netflix made a big announcement this week, teaming up with Ubisoft for a an Assassin's Creed live action series. Now, I mean, the sky's the limit for possibilities on this, right? And Ubisoft's filmed and televisions Jason Altman and Danielle Krinick, Krinick, excuse me, is are, are coming to be executive producers. Of this series, search underway for a showrunner. I'll get to that in just a second. But, I mean, think about it. This is one of the most popular video game franchises in the world. Has been for a while, for a while, right? And I always thought, too, by the way, even when the movie came out, I always thought to myself, you know, this is an and this is a medium that really does, it's suited much better for television. I always thought, that Assassin's Creed was just worked better on TV. It's 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 a it's a medium that needs a a, a platform for long term storytelling, and not just you know something you can cram into a couple hours of a movie. Especially when you're talking about you know like period pieces, which I can only imagine that they're going to do as a part of this. And as a matter of fact, the the press release that was sent out by Netflix also suggests that there's going to be animated and anime projects tied to this partnership with Ubisoft as well. And just imagine for a second, an anime for Assassin's Creed. That could be just next level gorgeous, right? Because, I mean, let's face it, Netflix has done a pretty pretty darn good job with their anime stuff up to this point. I mean, their animated stuff too, there's no doubt about that, but the anime especially has just been... So visually striking. And this series is already being described by Netflix and company as genre bending. So who knows where this could go. And then my mind starts to wander. Like, who could they get for the showrunner? Who would be a good fit? And to me, I think Noah Hawley is a great fit for this. You know, just based on his work with Fargo and with Legion, I feel like he could do some pretty amazing things with Assassin's Creed. And I think that, you know, he could actually have time to do this, too, by the way. I mean, it's all well and good of wanting somebody to work on a project or a show. Do they have the time? I mean, other than Star Trek, writing that Star Trek movie, he doesn't really have a whole lot going on, right? I mean, who knows how much longer Fargo's going to have to go, right? You know, Legion's already done, so you don't have to worry about that. He doesn't have a ton of projects on his plate, so conceivably he could be a showrunner for this Assassin's Creed series, at least in the first season, right? Now, obviously, he has to also want to do this, but to me, it's just this, this feels like it would be a really good fit for him to come in and do this. Now, there's uh, any number of amazingly talented people that could have the same opportunity to be able to come in and work on this Assassin's Creed series. Just something about Noah Hawley makes me believe that he would be a really, really good choice for this. But, I mean, once they do hire a showrunner, think about it, though. This, The earliest this thing's going to get off the ground is, what, mid-2021? Before they could even think about starting to film? Maybe even late 2021? So there's a chance we wouldn't even see this until 2022 and beyond anyway. Another reason why I feel like Noah Hawley's got all the time in the world 
to be able to jump on and potentially do this, but only time will tell. And of course, any updates we'll have them for you here on the show as they develop. This was another thing that made me really, really happy. As a longtime Looney Tunes fan, and I've said that on the show before, that also means Tiny Tunes for me. And a Tiny Tunes reboot is coming to HBO Max and Cartoon Network. It's going to be called Tiny Tunes Looniversity because, you know, why wouldn't it, right? And it's actually being given a two-season straight-to-series order. That doesn't really happen outside of, like, The Walking Dead or something like that, right? This is not a normal thing to automatically give a show two seasons, animated or not. Steven Spielberg going to be back as executive producer, going to be teaming up there with Warner Brothers Animation president, also president of Cartoon Network, Sam Register, and a whole bunch of other people from Amblin Television going to be involved in this as well. The synopsis isn't really a synopsis. I mean, it's kind of a generic, you know, take on Tiny Toon Adventures anyway, you know, with Babs and Buster and, you know, the gang, and they're going to the, they're they're going to the esteemed higher learning of hijinks sort of thing at Acme University, and they're being taught by, you know, our beloved Looney Tunes, but that, I mean, that just describes the, the series in a nutshell, but it was something that, that Flavi and Frank actually said, and those are going to be a couple of the, the producers involved here, Justin Flavi and Daryl Frank from Amblin that are going to be producers of the show. Something that they said in the press release really gave me hope other than them being thrilled to be working with Warner Brothers Animation, HBO Max and Cartoon Network. They talked about, and I'm going to quote this here. The tiny to- reimagining the Tiny Toons for new audiences, and we know that fans of the original series will be just as excited to share the show with their children as they will be to revisit a childhood favorite. I hear those words, and I say, they get it. They absolutely get it. You you got to try and have your cake and eat it too. In this situation, right, you want to introduce these characters to a whole new set of fans, but you have people like me who see this and are super, super excited to have the Tiny Toons back in any way, shape, or form. I mean, obviously, my first reaction was I can't wait to watch this with my sons. I can't wait to sit down and watch this with them because I think that they're really, really going to enjoy it. But to know that... You have to pay homage in a certain respect to the original Tiny Toon Adventures that was so, so great. And know that you also have to please those fans, even though they are, you know, certainly I am much, much older than I was when I first started watching Tiny Toons. So, but they're also going to try to appeal to those fans as well. You don't want to pander to either or, but at the same time, to be successful, I think you have to make this an all-around show that both parents and kids can enjoy. And that's not an easy thing to do, by the way. But I cannot wait to see how HBO Max, Cartoon Network, and everybody at Warner Brothers Animation can pull this off. And I really, really have high hopes for this one. Really quickly, I wanted to run down the premiere dates for the CW Arrowverse series and a bunch of other stuff that we might be interested in as well that came out this week, just in case you didn't get a chance to read it yet. So here's the deal. I'm just going to go ahead and list them. Not going to waste your time with any of the, you know, the the fluff that's involved in the rest of this. Let's just get right to the date, shall we? Sunday, January the 17th is when we're going to have season two of Batwoman premiere. That'll be an eight o'clock Eastern time premiere for Batwoman on Sunday, January the 17th. Wednesday, January the 20th is when we're going to have Riverdale at eight o'clock and Nancy Drew at 9 o'clock. Going to keep those on the same night. I think that's, you know, smart. On Thursday, January 21st, it's the Walker, Texas Ranger reboot. Walker, it's going to be at 8 o'clock. Legacies will follow that at 9 o'clock. And then the following Sunday, January 24th, right after Batwoman, is going to be the season premiere of Charmed at 9 o'clock. And then fast forward a little bit after that, you have Black Lightning returning Monday, February the 8th. At 9 o'clock Eastern Time, that's going to be the Season 3 premiere for Black Lightning. Season 3, right? You know, I feel like I'm losing track at this point because Black Lightning feels like it's been around forever already at this point, really. And then you've got Tuesday, February the 23rd, as we fast forward even further. So that is The Flash and Superman and Lois at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock 
respectively. So it looks like we're going to be waiting a little bit longer than we thought for The Flash. Not really surprised when it comes to Superman and Lois. Batwoman being first, again, doesn't surprise me. We also shouldn't be surprised that we don't have any dates yet for DC's Legends of Tomorrow, DC's Stargirl, or Supergirl. Those were expected to be mid-season premieres anyway. But again, mid-season this season in 2021 is going to maybe be what? Early, I mean, early summer, late spring-ish. So these are shows that are going to run into the summer. But are filming right now, by the way. DC's Legends of Tomorrow filming right now, as is Stargirl and Supergirl. So... It's not like these shows are going to be filming later. So it's not like it would bump up right against it. What what I mean is is that if they decided to start shooting again for a fall season in the summer, you wouldn't really have to worry about that if it was a normal fall season because they're filming now. So it's not like the schedules would be that much different. Probably a little bit more grueling filming this season than hopefully it will be in next seasons. And, of course, obviously we want... Is for things to you know go back to normal. I think everybody wants things to go back to normal, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know go ahead and talk a whole lot about that because you know who knows at this point. But there's a lot to look forward to in the CW. There's even a Nancy Drew spinoff series that's going to be coming at some point as well, and who knows how that's going to do too. But I mean, the CW set themselves up pretty well. They said they were going to wait until 2021 to debut most of their fall seasons, and that's exactly what they're doing. Obviously, these dates contingent on you know, little or no shutdowns due to COVID-19, you know, shutting down any filming for any amount of time. So I'll have to keep an eye on that. These dates could obviously change at any point. So, I mean, it's just a cross your fingers, wait and see type of situation. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, I want to thank Adam Lawson for joining me this week to talk about his new Kickstarter campaign for the Kill Journal. You guys have got to see the art for this, seriously. You got to go to Kickstarter Find the Kill Journal and go ahead and back that thing. You have until November the 6th to do that. You can also find the link, by the way, on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. Also follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.